Well, good morning to you. I hope I'm not the first one to say that to you. Uh, If you're new, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. And it is my honor and privilege today to invite you to point your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the black ones from the pew in front of you. Luke chapter 4 can be found on page 860 of the Black Bibles. And if you're not super familiar with how the Bible works, the chapter numbers are the big numbers, the verse numbers are the little numbers. And today we'll be starting in verse 31, and we'll work our way through to the end of chapter 4. If you don't own a Bible, please just take that one home with you. That is this congregation's gift to you. And now we come to the most important part of our week. Our Heavenly Father will speak to us through His Word. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to His church. I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we will get to work. should be around 45 minutes or so. Hear now the word of the Lord. And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word for unclean spirits? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue, and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Would you pray with me? 
Father, will you now open our eyes to the glories of Jesus Christ that we have just read so that we may see him and know him? Would you give us faith to believe in what we have just read so that we would trust him? And would you cause your word to find good soil in our hearts that it would take root deeply in us and bear fruit profoundly through us that Jesus would receive the praise from our lives that he richly deserves. Amen. There's a phrase that I suspect every little child hears often in their childhood. They hear it from mom and they hear it from dad and they hear it from grandma and grandpa and sometimes they even hear it from doctors. And it is, show me where it hurts. Under normal circumstances, when a baby or a young child is scared or injured, they'll turn to their mom or to their dad for comfort. It's instinctive. They don't have to be taught this. Something deep within a child tells them when there's problems, find mommy, find daddy. They'll take care of me. And mommy will often say to her little one, show me where it hurts. And she'll put her hand on that place or she'll kiss the boo-boo. Now, of course, scientists know that physiologically speaking, a mother's kiss has no healing properties whatsoever. But babies don't care what scientists think. Babies know what mommy's kiss will do for them. Mommy's kiss tells me she loves me and I'm going to be okay. And that's all the healing that I need. In the passage before us, the Lord Jesus Christ has begun his ministry, and he's preached, and he has proclaimed already what he, as the anointed one of God, will do. He will heal the sick. He will grant freedom to the oppressed. And the gospel writer Luke shows us this very thing. Jesus has authority to heal and to deliver. And so I'll endeavor this morning from God's Word to show us all that Jesus Christ has authority over all the things that ail you. Something has happened in your life. You've been injured. Perhaps you've taken a fall. Perhaps you've sustained an offense. Maybe you gave your heart to someone and they broke it. Maybe you're suffering a debilitating illness. Perhaps you've given in to temptation again. Perhaps that same addiction that's been clawing at your life continues to claw. And you've come to church today hurting and discouraged and weary and beat down. And like a mother to a child, the Lord comes to you today telling you, show me where it hurts. Here's the big idea this morning. Jesus Christ has authority over the forces of evil and the effects of sin. Turn to him when you are sick and depressed. Jesus Christ has the authority over the forces of evil and the effects of sin. Turn to him when you are sick and depressed. 
As we normally do, we'll work our way through the passage a little bit at a time. And the first thing that we will see in verses 31 to 37 is that Jesus has authority over the forces of evil. And the second, we will see that Jesus has the authority over the forces, the effects of sin, which we'll see in verses 38 to 41. And then finally, we will see that the purpose of Jesus is to preach the gospel in verses 42 to 44. That's how it's laid out for us this morning, so we can get to work. Let's have a look at verse 31 and 32 again. And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And for those of you who were with us last week, what did we learn about this man, Jesus? Well, we learned that he is a preacher. He made it his custom to go to synagogue and to preach the word of God to the people of God. If the church doors were open, you would find Jesus there with God's people and with God's word opened. And his preaching ministry in the Gospel of Luke so far began with a reading from Isaiah chapter 61. The Lord announced that he was the one Isaiah foretold would come in the power of the Holy Spirit as a preacher, and that he would announce good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, that he would give sight to the blind and give freedom to those who are oppressed. Well, all of that happened in his hometown of Nazareth, and his hometown folks rejected him. There's an interesting phrase, if you have your Bible open up in verse 29. I didn't mention this last week, but the people of Nazareth tried to push the Son of God off the hill, and you see Luke's phrase there, on which the town was built. It's an interesting phrase. The, they are rejecting the person on which all things are built by trying to push him off the edge of a cliff on which their whole town is built. A fitting picture, don't you think, of unbelief. Let's get rid of the one upon whom our entire existence depends because he said something we didn't like. Anyway, Jesus leaves Nazareth and goes on to Capernaum. Luke says he goes down. It's actually north of where he is, but he's going down because it's a drop in elevation. It's a 2,000-foot drop over 20 miles or so, so he could have sled it there. Capernaum becomes the home base of the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 9 says this is his own city. This is where Jesus pays his taxes. Home is where your heart is? No. Home is where you pay your taxes. And that's where Jesus is in Capernaum. And you'll notice while he's in Capernaum, I feel like a bit broken record here, but he goes to church on the Sabbath day, and he's teaching. And the people are astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. That word astonished, we've seen it in Luke before. It's the same word that is used of Jesus' parents when they see him in the temple, and he's a kid, and he's teaching the scribes and the experts of the Bible. And they're astonished at him. Literally, the word means to strike out. It means to force out. We would say, mind blown. 
So literally, Jesus is blowing their minds with his teaching. And what about his teaching is blowing their minds? Well, Luke tells us it's because his, his word possessed authority. His word possessed authority. It's an important word in this passage, which we'll circle back to in a little bit. Here, this word authority is meant to highlight the difference between Jesus' own teaching and the sort of teaching that they're used to receiving at synagogue. Their typical diet in the synagogue consisted of a rabbi teaching about the text, and a rabbi would draw from the authority of another rabbi who was talking about another rabbi who said this because another rabbi said this, and that was kind of what they received as their teaching. And here comes this man, Jesus of Nazareth, whose teaching is quite different. He has authority. His authority doesn't come from the rabbis. Because Jesus will come along and he'll say, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. His authority is his own. He draws from no one. His word is God's word. It is clear. It is true. It is life-giving. It is life-changing. It is mind-blowing. This is the Son of God expounding the Word of God to the people of God. And He blows their minds. This is Psalm 119 in practice. Psalm 119 says, Your words are sweeter than honey. At the end of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24, Jesus meets with a couple of disciples were disillusioned by what took place when Jesus went to the cross and died. And they're leaving the city, and Jesus comes alongside them, and Luke says that he begins to teach them about everything that was written about himself in the law and in the prophets. And afterwards, these two men said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. May the Lord give all of us that same burning heart as he speaks to us today from his word. Church, if you sit long enough under gospel preaching, you're going to find that there are times when you feel like you're the only person in the room. Like the preacher specifically wrote his message to your specific situation. And I want you to know that that is not the preacher who did that. But God is speaking to you in that moment. And you would do well to listen. But I want you to notice in the section before us that Luke brackets this whole passage with uh, two mentions of Jesus' preaching ministry, right here at the beginning and then again towards the end. In the middle, verses 33 to 41, his healing ministry are sandwiched between these two mentions of his ministry of the Word. And this is by design. It's something we'll come back to over and over again in the Gospel of Luke. But Jesus came first to preach. And secondly as 1 John 3 says, to destroy the works of the devil. Which is exactly what we see happening next. Let's keep reading. Verse 33. Let's pick up where we left off. Verse 33, down to 37. 
So Jesus is preaching, and in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. When God's word is rightly preached, the forces of evil react. We have plenty of time in the series in Luke to talk about demons. Demons are mentioned more than 20 times in the Gospel of Luke. Generally, Christians have understood demons to be evil angels who turn from God and who work evil in the world. And C.S. Lewis noted that Christians can tend to fall on two equal and opposite errors when it comes to demons and devil. And one error, Lewis explains, is to disbelieve in their existence. The other error is to believe and then to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So some folks will act like there ain't no such thing as demons and unclean spirits. It's all silly fantasy and mental disorders. And then other folks will act like demons are to be blamed for everything. Demon chasing kind. Have you met these folks? They look for demons under, we used to say they look for demons under doilies. And the reality is that demons are real. They are created beings and they have an effect in the world. The Bible says that those who worship false idols, worship false gods, are actually worshiping demons. But demons have limited power. They don't know the future. They can't read minds. And most importantly, just as we've read in this passage, they are under the authority of the Lord Jesus. But it's interesting, though. They're in the synagogue, and a man who has a spirit of a demon is in attendance. And when he hears Jesus preaching, it cries out. And you have to wonder, don't you, how long he attended synagogue without ever having any trouble with the preaching that he heard? The rabbis droning on and on about their traditions and never once unsettling that demon. At the moment the Son of God comes and opens his mouth to speak the word of God, the demon is outed. In Greek, which is the language the New Testament was written in, in Greek the word translated ha is just an exclamation of displeasure. So your translations may say, leave us alone. And the demon says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Literally, what business do we have with each other? Now, if you're a nerd like I am, you can't help but read this passage and think about that scene from The Lord of the Rings where Gandalf the wizard releases King Theoden from his evil spell. The king is under the influence of evil, and the king asks, Why should I welcome you, Gandalf, Stormcrow? 
The king's accusing the wizard of being a harbinger of trouble and woe. And the demon here asks Jesus, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, demons can't see the future, but they know what God has promised. Every creature which turns from God will be destroyed. That word destroyed means utterly ruined, not in the sense of ceasing to exist, but utterly ruined, a ruin that does not end. The phrase Holy One of God refers to Jesus' unique identity as God's Son, as the Messiah. So those of you who have been with us in the series, you'll remember back in chapter 1, the, the angel of God came to Mary and said, Your Son will be holy, the Holy One of God. The demons knew who Jesus was. Now this may come of some surprise to you, but demons believe in God. Actually, they know a lot about Him. But believing in God gets you nowhere. So if you're not a Christian and you're here, please pay close attention to this section of Luke 4. Friend, you should take no comfort in the fact that you believe in God. The Bible says you believe in God, you're doing great. So do the demons. Friend, just simply believing in God is not enough. The only way to be made right with God is to turn to Him, to accept that what He has said about you is true, that what He has said about Himself is true, that you by your own sin have incurred the judgment of God on your life. But God, in His love for sinners like you, sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay the penalty of the sin you deserved. And God raised Him from the dead three days later. And when you admit your sin and turn to Him, you will find that He will forgive you of your sin. You will be joined to Christ. And all the favor that God has for His Son will be granted to you. Friend, that's the only way to be made right with God. Believing in Him is not enough. You must place your faith and trust in Him and devote your entire life to Him. You should do that today. Before you leave this place today, take one of those black Bibles and find someone who looks like a regular and ask them to begin reading it with you and explaining to you how you can be saved through Jesus Christ. Verse 35, Jesus rebukes this demon, tells him, be silent, come out of him. Colloquially, we would say, shut your mouth, demon. And Jesus commands the demon to come out, and guess what happens? He comes out. There's no incantations. There's no pageantry. There's no sprinkling of holy water. There's no garlic or wooden stakes here. Jesus simply speaks to the demon, and the demon falls to the ground, comes out of the man. And this is what Luke wants you to see. 
that Jesus has authority over the forces of evil. He speaks his word, exposes the problem. Where does it hurt? The demon manifests, falls to the ground, and comes out of him, leaving the man unharmed. I'm afraid some of us have this idea that the forces of evil and the forces of God are in this cosmic battle against one another. There are these dueling powers in the universe. And we're on God's side, and we're pretty sure and hoping that in the end God will win. But that's not how it is. The forces of evil are not frustrating the plans of God. Satan is a created being. He's under the authority of God. He is subservient to God. He is serving the purposes of God. Have you ever read the book of Job? What does Job chapter 1 tell you? That if the enemy can do anything in this world, he has to have the permission of God first. In verse 36, everyone is amazed. And listen to the reaction. What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Jesus has authority and power. Up in verse 32, we saw he had his word possessed authority. And it's the same idea here. That Christ has the authority over the power and the forces of evil. He commands them to leave and they heed his command without question, without resistance. And reports of Jesus' power go out everywhere. And I'm wondering, dear Christian, has this truth settled on your heart? You didn't fear the forces of evil in this world. The devil is a defeated foe. And I don't know what you think about the direction our world is going. But wars and rumors of wars. I was blessed by our brother's prayer for peace. But banish from your mind forever any idea you might have of God up in heaven wringing his hands, hoping things will turn out. Our God does not hope. Our God is hope. Everything that you see is going exactly as he has planned it to go. You needn't fear the forces of evil. Just two weeks ago, in this very room, after the service was over, we were all saying these words. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God is willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Luke wants us to see that Jesus' authority over the forces of evil, and then Luke wants us to see that Jesus has authority over the effects of sin. And this is where we turn next. Jesus has authority over the effects of sin. Let's pick up reading in verse 38 and 39. And Jesus arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. 
So after church that day, Jesus goes to Simon's house for a nice after-church meeting. Simon, by the way, is Simon Peter. Um, We'll meet him next week. From the other Gospels, we know that Peter has already met the Lord Jesus. His name was Simon, and Jesus changed it to Peter. He operates a fishing business in Capernaum with his brother Andrew and his business partner, partner John and James, all of whom become disciples of Christ. And here we learn that Simon's got him a wife. Because in order to have a mother-in-law, you also have to have a wife. And so his mother-in-law is maybe living with them, and she is sick. And Luke says, she is ill with a high fever. And in, in the original language, in Greek, it's a very technical phrase that, Paul, that Luke uses here. Because Luke is a doctor, and he uses the medical term, which doctors are prone to do. And we know that it's a high fever, because it's a woman who has it. Because if it were a man, it'd be 100 degrees, and he'd be begging for death. But a woman can have 103 degrees and be landscaping the front lawn just fine. Verse 38 says that they appealed to Jesus on her behalf. So if it's true that Peter's mother-in-law lives with him and that she's sick and that he's appealing to Jesus for her, this is a wonderful thing. Because some of y'all would pray a different prayer for your mother-in-law if she were sick in your house. An imprecatory prayer or something like this. But not Peter. And not me. My mother-in-law is amazing. Notice in verse 39 that Jesus stands over her and rebukes the fever. It's the same exact word that was used when Jesus rebuked the demon in verse 35 and then again in verse 41. Is this because the, the fever is demonic? No. It's because Luke is teaching us that Jesus has the authority over both the forces of evil and the effects of sin. Even the Lord's posture is telling. He's standing over her, which indicates that this sickness and this disease are under him. Like the demon fell at his feet, the fever, the disease is under him. And just like the demons have to heed his command, so does disease. Luke says, she's healed immediately. Immediately she rose and began to serve them. So in the course of just a couple of hours, Jesus has demonstrated that he has authority over the forces of evil and the effects of sin. Now, I've been saying this, but I should probably explain it. Sickness and disease are the result of sin. And I don't mean that when you get sick, it's because you have sinned against God in some way, and He is punishing you with an illness. But as soon as you repent, you'll get better. What I mean is that when mankind rebelled against God in the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, Sin infected everything, and one of the effects of sin is death. Sickness is just an evidence of our dying. But like the demons, sickness and disease are under Christ's authority. And God uses them for His purposes. The Bible says, for our good. And so you might be wondering if this is true. If Jesus has truly has authority over illness, over my sickness and disease, then why has he not healed me? I've prayed, 
and I'm not healed. In a room this size, the effects of sin are going to be felt in an untold number of ways. Through physical ailments, like cancer and heart disease, kidney failure, and back pain, and migraines, degenerative eye disease. The effects of sin are going to be felt in mental ways, like depression, dementia, and autism, and ADHD, PTSD, and a hundred more. And if God loves us, and God has the power to heal us, well, why doesn't he? There are a number of ways to answer this question. The first thing we must do is we must remember we, we should not make our health the measure of God's love. The cross of Jesus Christ is the measure of God's love. Second, God does heal. Always. God does heal his people always. And he will either heal you in this life or he will heal you in the next. But either way, you will be healed. The third thing we must remember is that our God is good and that we know that he is sovereign over all things. And therefore, whatever sickness we endure, it's never without meaning. It is being used by God for our good and for his glory. And we may, we may not be able to see it at the moment. We may not know how it works. But we know that it does. In his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, Michael Wilcox offers one answer as to why God doesn't always heal us in this life. Wilcox writes, God could, of course, give us immediate relief. But it seems he'd rather take the opportunity to do something far more far-reaching, which will be to our greater benefit in the long run. We will find it more protracted and perhaps more painful. And we may not understand what he is doing, but he may be treating disorders of which we are unaware, close quote. So whether God gives you grace immediately for you to be healed in the moment, or whether God gives you grace to sustain you through your suffering, you need to know he loves you. And we know this because of the cross. Because if he would go to such an extent to save your soul, then he will never be fast and loose with any part of you. Remember Jesus' promise, not a single hair is going to fall from your head without him noticing. That's how much he cares. So don't let yourself ever think that just by suffering through an illness, God is punishing you, or God's favor has been lost. That's never the case. Your sickness, your illness, your suffering is being used by him for your good and for his glory. Well, if we didn't get it the first time, Luke simply repeats himself 
Let's look at verse 40 and 41. When the sun was setting, all who had who, all who had any who were sick with various disease brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So the sun is setting, Sabbath is over, people are permitted under Jewish law to travel and to walk, and they get to both. Start bringing their families to Jesus and their friends to Jesus. And Jesus lays his hands on each one of them and heals them. Show me where it hurts. And these two verses are a wonderful illustration, at least verse 40 is, a wonderful illustration of church membership. This is a people in community caring about one another and seeing one another's needs. And then bringing one another to Jesus. Which is what we do in church membership, isn't it? We covenant together to care for one another spiritually. We say to our brother and sister in our church, we say, my spiritual well-being is your business. And your spiritual well-being is my business. And I covenant with you to care for you, to pray for you, to encourage you when you need encouragement even to correct you when you need corrected. And I commit to you that I will receive the same from you. And this is why we gather on the Lord's Day, so that we can see one another. But how can we encourage one another if we don't know one another? The great Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, encouraged the aging segment of his congregation from verse 40, telling them that though the sun may be setting on your life, you still have much work to do. Bring your friends and your neighbors with their various spiritual diseases to your Savior, Jesus Christ. It's good advice. Because, Christian, you never retire from Christian ministry. No matter what your age, may we all be like those in Capernaum, bringing our friends and neighbors to see Jesus, to be freed from the devil's grip and from their disease. Well, you might be wondering why it is that Jesus keeps telling these demons to stop talking about him. And we're not told, but it seems that the reason that Jesus is telling these demons to close their mouth is because he has a different means for pointing to who he truly is. The testimony of demons will not serve confirmation of his person and of his preaching. That is the purpose of his miracles. That is the purpose of his miracles. Which brings us to the next and last thing we'll talk about in this passage, verse 42 to the end. This is where we'll end our time together. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him, and who have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the gospel. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. All night of ministry. And the Lord is seeking some silence and some solitude. And the people search him out. And Luke says they would have kept him from leaving them. 
Now, wanting Jesus nearby is a commendable thing, but it seems that their motivation wasn't quite so honorable. Of course, having a miracle-working demon destroyer in your hometown would have been very, shall we say, useful. But Jesus Christ must never be considered useful. No, people try and do the very same thing today. But we must resist every urge in us to make Jesus a means to an end rather than the end. He is a miracle worker, but he is not an insurance policy against suffering and against hell. He's not someone who will give you social capital among your friends. Jesus is not useful. And he will resist every effort that we put into making him useful. Besides, his miracles are never an end in themselves. The Bible calls Jesus' miracles signs. And what does a sign do? A sign points. They point... The miracles of Christ are meant to point to the person and the preaching of Christ. The miracles of Christ are meant to point to the person and preaching of Christ. And so when the people want to keep him in Capernaum as their local miracle man, he resists and says, I must preach. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. I mean, miracles are good, but they're secondary. The preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God is his primary purpose. And the miracles are meant to serve his preaching ministry. And Lord, Lord willing, we'll look at that a little bit more in chapter 5. Luke has shown us that Jesus Christ has authority over the forces of evil and over the effects of sin. And this is meant to encourage us to turn to him when we are sick and when we are oppressed. Like a mother to her children, hear the Lord saying to you today, show me where it hurts. The reality is there is no area of your life that doesn't need Jesus. And there's no area of your life that Jesus isn't most willing to heal. So whatever ails you today, turn it over to him. Trust in his healing touch. And it will be exactly what you need. For God may choose to heal you instantly. Or he may choose to give you grace to sustain you as you endure through your illness. Either way, it's meant to show you He is sufficient. And we must know that His sufficiency, knowing Christ is enough, is more precious than comfort. Whatever ails you today, turn to Jesus. Show Him where it hurts. If you'd like prayer, We'll have a couple of folks up here after the service today. We'll be happy to pray with you for whatever hurts. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we confess to you this morning 
but we are sinners. And we have neglected to apply these glorious truths to our lives. We've been swallowed up in all of the bad news of our world. And we've allowed ourselves to become discouraged by the effects of evil. We've neglected the truth that you have authority over all of these things. And so, Father, we admit to you, we've done wrong. We admit that we have not viewed sickness and disease in the right way. So, so often we've acted like our sickness is sovereign above Jesus. And our suffering consumes us, consumes our minds more than our Savior consumes our minds. Please forgive us for making Jesus so small. Lord, there are some here who have asked for healing from you and you've not answered in the way that they've wanted. Will you sustain them? Heal the sick. Heal the brokenhearted. Support them, sustain them, hold them. Let them know you are near and they are loved. And if it is your good pleasure to heal them in the next life and not this one, Lord, protect my people from becoming bitter or cynical. Protect my people from unbelief and from the whispers of the enemy. You hear us. You always hear us. Amen. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I can announce to you an assurance of the pardon of your sins from Acts chapter 10, verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Amen, we believe that.